Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future. Brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we're going to hear from Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute and the author of a new paper titled Reconciling with Reality, the Top Priorities for Building Back Better. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will join me in asking Ben about those priorities and the chances for getting a deal among progressive and moderate factions of the Democratic Party anytime soon. Democrats, of course, are facing some hard choices in Washington as they seek to fit their ambitious agenda of new benefits for child care, college education, and health care into a single bill, a so-called reconciliation bill, with a maximum cost of roughly $2 trillion over 10 years. Some have argued that the best way to, to do this is to just put a time limit on everything. In other words, do it all but have it sunset, <clears throat> excuse me, after a few years. Others have argued that Democrats should just focus on a targeted subset of their full agenda and make sure that these items are fully paid for on a permanent basis. Our guest today is among the latter group, and that's what his paper is all about. Ben is the director of PPI's Center for Funding America's Future. Prior to joining PPI, Ben staffed the Bipartisan Policy Center's Commission on Retirement Security and Personal Savings, and before joining the Bipartisan Policy Center, Ben served as legislative outreach director for the Concord Coalition. He earned his master's degree in uh, public policy analysis uh, and a graduate certificate of public finance from American University in 2014. And that's also where he got his undergraduate degree. Ben and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Before we get into the, the priorities that, uh, that PPI set out in the, in the paper you wrote, Ben, there's been another approach that's been bandied about on the Hill, which is why set priorities among the uh, agenda items in the Build Back Better plan, why not just do it all and then sunset them after a few years so it keeps the official cost down and then get back to them later and affect sort of daring another um, Congress to let them lapse. Why did you go this route instead of that route? I think there are two main reasons. The first is the fiscal reason. Uh, if you decide to do it that way and you're using you know, 10 years of offsets to pay for five years of spending, uh, you're not really paying for the bill. You, if, if we're talking about a fully paid for bill, as President Biden has promised, that means that however long you're running the programs, you have to be able to offset it within that window. Otherwise, if the programs are just made permanent later, if all the policies in the bill were continued just as written, the bill would never be offset. And you're getting you know, those deficit impacts, especially in the first few years, which if some of these members are concerned about things like inflation, and that's why they want it to be offset, this approach doesn't really address that. The second reason, and I think this one should be particularly important to progressives, 
is that if you set a program to expire, there is a risk that it actually does expire. And I think back to the fight over the Affordable Care Act and what would have happened if Democrats had had this you know, short-sighted approach during President Obama's presidency. And they said, we're gonna let the ACA expire in some random year, maybe 2017, and let's just you know, try to expand, extend it then. Uh, I think it would have been much easier for Republicans to just sit on their hands and let it expire instead of having to cobble together 218 in the House and 51 in the Senate to actually do an affirmative vote to repeal it. And so I think it is very risky for the Biden legacy to be taking that approach. Yeah, it seems to be a, a massive uh, budget gimmick. Uh, so let's get into some of the uh, key priorities. Um, just before we get into the details, what were the three, you had three big areas that you thought Democrats should focus on? Yeah, the three areas we thought Democrats should focus on were supporting working families, and that's about half the package we propose. Second biggest category is combating the climate crisis. And the third category is strengthening the Affordable Care Act by expanding coverage to families that don't currently have access to it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that first pillar about the supporting families. Um, the cornerstone of that is the, the child tax credit. Um, now the child tax credit is unique in that it has in general bipartisan support. I mean, it's, it's a credit that's been around for a while. The Republican tax cut bill in 2017 doubled the tax credit from $1,000 to $2,000 per, per child. It did some other things as well. Um, but then the Democrats uh, COVID relief bill uh, earlier this year uh, expanded it once again. Uh, now, granted, the, the both provisions were, were temporary, right? The Republican tax version uh, extended the, the, the child tax credit to 2025 and the Democrats bill just, just, just to the end of this year. So the, the complicating factor here is, is how to design a child tax credit given that you've got all these, these fiscal cliffs and obviously trying to make something like this permanent is going to be very expensive because not only are you trying to extend uh, the changes that the Democrats made to the child tax cut, tax credit, excuse me, but you're also trying to make permanent the Republicans uh, change. So given that it's really, really expensive to make the current design uh, permanent, uh, and given that there is some bipartisan support for something perhaps in the middle. Uh, what, what is your, in your opinion, what is sort of the sweet spot for the child tax credit? What, what is like the ultimate tax credit, child tax credit look like to PPI? Sure, so I think one important thing to remember about the Republican child tax credit is it wasn't a straight tax credit expansion. They partially offset the cost by making changes to uh, personal independent exemptions that existed in the tax code before the, the tax cut bill. And so they had this whole package expire in 2025. It wasn't just the child tax credit expansion. And so an argument that we have been making to uh, Democrats is we could take those middle-class tax changes, which I think we actually mostly support. Those are the provisions that are generally supported. Uh, and we can make those permanent along with the expanded child tax credit and that reduces the net cost of our expansion, the one that President Biden signed this year, to $800 billion over 10 years. Uh, that, I think that's a lot more realistic and plausible than just a straight expansion, permanent expansion of the child tax credit. From that point, I think it's worth considering, you know, is there a possible sweet spot in the middle? You know, I would rather have 
a smaller but permanent and fully refundable uh, child tax credit so that low-income families get the full value of it. That's where most of the poverty reduction but less of the cost comes from is that full refundability. Uh, I would rather do that than have the tax credit at exactly the current levels that we do. Um, and then within that framework, there's also room for other changes. So for example, um, right now you get a flat $3,000 a year benefit for kids, for older kids, but it's $3,600 a year for younger kids. And there's an argument that younger kids need more support, they're more expensive. And especially if there's a risk of losing something like the, the childcare subsidies, there should be more support for younger kids. And so one idea we've put out there is to maybe do you know, a $2,500 tax credit for older kids and a $4,000 tax credit for younger kids. And, you, know, you can play with the, the levers. So you know, if you define younger kid as three and under, that's even more money that you can, uh, you can give to the, the younger kids. But I think that approach makes more sense than you know, just a straight extension of the current 3,000 or uh, allowing it to expire. Got it. Uh, another cornerstone of the, the Progressive Policy Institute policy uh, proposal is climate change. Um, we, we, you know, when, when you're moving legislation via reconciliation, we've heard people talk about the bird rule a lot. We've talked about it on this show. It, it's something that sort of constrains what you can and cannot put in a reconciliation bill. There's some concerns that some of the climate change proposals that have been put forward uh, may not pass uh, the, the bird rule inspection and may have to drop out. Then there's also the question of, of Senator Manchin uh, from West Virginia in the Senate, obviously a very coal friendly state. He doesn't like uh, the, the climate change proposals that are currently uh, under consideration uh, in the reconciliation bill. So my question is, is it, we all know that, that, that climate change is an issue. It's something that we're behind the curve on. It's something we need to do something about, but how do, how do you get climate change uh, into the Democrats' reconciliation bill? What does that policy look like that passes both the bird test and the mansion test? So before last week, the main policy, there, there are two main policies components to the, the Biden climate agenda. Uh, the first was a package of tax credits to encourage the adoption of electric vehicles and other renewable energy sources. And the second is what's known as the Clean uh, Electricity Performance Plan, uh, also called the CEPP or the SEP. And that was meant to incentivize utilities to adopt more uh, renewable energy. The SEP was a version of a previous proposal, the Clean Energy Standard, that couldn't have passed through reconciliation. The, the SEP is designed to do this through sort of a, a payment and penalties structure for utilities that, that Democrats hope will be able to pass the bird rule. And I think that given the work that has gone into that policy, that's still sort of the, the clearest, easiest path forward is to try to find a version of the SEP that you know, works for Senator Manchin and for, for climate uh, activists. Now, earlier this, the last week, there was reporting that, you know, talks could be breaking down there and there aren't, uh, you know, the, the set might fall out. So uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Paul Bledsoe, and I actually recently published a, a piece in The Hill this week, sort of offering two possible routes for a climate compromise. The first is to adjust the set to try to meet Senator Manchin's concerns. The two concerns he has stated the most are that he thinks it might uh, 
give heavy subsidies to utilities that are already transitioning towards renewable energy. And um, the, the second concern is, you know, the impact that this would have on, on West Virginia. And so, and because it wouldn't allow um, technologies like uh, coal and natural gas with carbon capture to qualify, and that's a big important component for them. So one option is to try to adjust the SEP so that the subsidies are lower, maybe cap them, um, and you know, change the standards so that carbon capture sequestration could, could qualify. If that approach doesn't work, we propose sort of an alternative structure, which is uh, a carbon price. One of the big obstacles to a carbon price historically, uh, you, know, you still have some of those issues with a coal state. So what we propose is that instead of just you know, raising the revenue from a carbon tax and rebating it directly to people, which is sort of one of the most common proposals, we would only do that with half of the revenue. The other half of revenue we would give to states to make sure that no state is paying more in carbon tax than they're getting back in from the government so that it's not a net transfer of wealth out of states like West Virginia. And we give them the money and allocate it for green development projects. So the states that are furthest behind on the climate transition get the most help in getting ahead. Uh, we would put them on a clock. We would say that structure only continues for five or 10 years because we don't want to perennially promote emissions, but we think this is an alternative approach that could work. Creative thinking. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, a, a lot of design going into uh, accommodating um, one senator to vote, but <laughs> that's what happens when that senator has the fiftieth vote. And I think that's you know it's an important thing for people to remember. I don't necessarily you know share all of Senator Manchin's concerns with the SAP. I know that that most climate activists don't, um, but he has the fiftieth vote and he chairs the uh, the Energy Committee in the Senate. And you know we need a compromise. We can't you know, afford to just let this drop out of the package. So we got to work with them. Right. Yeah, it's the, it's the art of the possible. Um, okay, so another senator that uh, comes to mind here that has specific ideas uh, is Senator Sanders, the chairman of the budget committee, who's really in favor of uh, adding dental, vision, and hearing benefits to Medicare as part of this package. Um, that did not end up in PPI's recommendation. In fact, you've written a, a column recently in, in Forbes that um, takes on that issue and says that shouldn't be the, uh, the, the priority for Democrats. I'm not even sure if, uh, uh, even if you didn't have to trim um, benefits that you would think that that would be a, a good use of money anyway. Yeah, I think that you have so many worthwhile priorities that President Biden proposed in his Build Back Better agenda, you know, uh, funding for universal pre-K and, and uh, workforce development and uh, the child tax credit and, and spending the Affordable Care Act. And we have all these worthwhile priorities in investing in the future that, that Biden has campaigned on. And then we have this other policy of expanding Medicare for current beneficiaries that Biden did not campaign on in the primary when he won, uh, was not in his original Build Back Better blueprint, the American Jobs and Family Plans. It's really only in the, the, the bill because Bernie pushed it as the chairman of the budget committee. And you know, we don't think that should be a terribly high priority right now when you know, millions of Americans still don't have affordable healthcare coverage because their states didn't expand access to Medicaid uh, through the Affordable Care Act. It's uh, over 2 million people in, I think it's 11 or 12 states. And 
we think it would be, you know, it wouldn't be very progressive to give more health care to the healthcare haves and not the, the have nots. Most seniors already have some form of dental, hearing, and vision coverage through Medicare Advantage or a supplemental Medigap plan, or you know, they have access to it and choose not, to, you know, a low-cost plan and choose not to use it. So our position is that you know this expansion should not detract resources from any other policy in the bill, as we're trying to shrink the bill down to a politically manageable size, something we can pay for. Uh, this should not detract resources from any other priority. So we propose that either the, the expansion is fully offset by income-based premiums so that uh, you know, it's, not, it's, it's a self-financing policy, or we think it should be put off and dealt with, you know, if there is a benefit adequacy question here, let's deal with it as part of a comprehensive solution to the Medicare, uh, the challenges that Medicare faces. And to do that, we propose uh, that Congress consider pursuing a future of Medicare commission. And as a, uh, uh, roughly how much would that uh, benefit cost? How much, of, how much of a part of the package is that provision? So it's, uh, it's one of those provisions that uh, has been heavily gimmicked. So the, the, the Medicare expansion as currently designed phases in over time. And so the original stated cost was something like $400 billion. But once the benefits are fully uh, phased in, it ends up being over $80 billion a year. So that's, that's $800 billion over the 10-year window if the benefit is available uh, in its full form. And that's just, that's just an enormous amount in the context of a package that could be you know, $1.5 to $2 trillion. That's almost half the package for a policy that President Biden didn't even propose. Yeah, we should have said the, the, the mission here is to somehow get 3.5 trillion down to around 2 trillion. So it's like, right. it's like one of our budget exercises where you go through and, <laughs> and have to make the hard choices. Um, uh, as an alternative, not as an alternative, but something that is in the PPI plan is increased subsidi subsidizing um, ACA uh, plans that, that was in the rescue plan, American rescue plan, and you'd recommend uh, continuing those enhanced subsidies. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So the, uh, the American rescue plan resolved what was this, this cliff for many families where uh, benefit, you know, the subsidies were designed to limit healthcare costs for people who purchase plans on the ACA exchanges to a percent of family income, but that cap abruptly expires. And so uh, if you're just over the cap, you, you end up having a big, there's a big subsidy cliff uh, where people can't necessarily get affordable coverage, uh, but you know, aren't necessarily high income. And so what, what uh, the, the rescue plan smoothed over that cliff, uh, I think there, there is room to tweak that formula. I know the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget has put out some, some alternative ideas. But I, I think it's critical that we finish the job of the Affordable Care Act by smoothing that benefit cliff and making sure that, that all working families have access to affordable health care. And I think that's a higher priority than expanding coverage for seniors who already get pretty generous benefits at, at low costs. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Ben Ritz, director of the Center for Funding America's Future uh, at the project at the Progressive Policy Institute. We'll be right back after these short messages. 
Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with Ben Ritz, Director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. And he's also the author of a new paper, Reconciling with Reality, the Top Priorities for Building Back Better. Uh, Ben, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to make some sort of uh, uh, snarky remark about reconciling with reality and whether you were able to do that when you worked for the Concord Coalition. <laughs> I guess you did because you, you moved on to bigger and better things. And uh, this paper is getting a great deal of attention. Um, one of the things that PPI has said is that uh, it, uh, whatever, whatever priorities they land on ought to be paid for. Um, Corey, do you want to take up that question about uh, offsets? Uh, sure. Uh, so there's been a, a lot of conversation about uh, the cost of this bill, dialing back the cost of this bill from $3.5 trillion to somewhere between $1.9, $2.3 trillion. I think you mentioned that up at the top of the show. Um, my question now comes is there's been a, when you hear Democrats talk about this bill, they, they swear that they're going to pay for it, right? That this isn't going to add to the deficit, they're going to pay for this. Um, but the budget resolution they adopted allows Democrats to draft a reconciliation bill that would increase the deficit by at least $1.75 trillion over the next 10 years. Um, and knowing how hard it is to come up with offsets that uh, 51 senators are going to agree to and a majority of House Democrats are going to agree to. I guess my question to you, Ben, is, uh, is this going to be offset? And if so, what do those offsets look like? I would say we, we hope it's going to be offset. Um, you know, the, the 1.75 trillion is actually more of a, more of a ceiling than a, a floor on the deficit the impact they can have. But I, I mean, President Biden has promised that it's going to be offset and Democrats have campaigned on it. So you know, it would be problematic if it wasn't. Right now, the bill is currently constructed. Uh, I think Committee for Responsible Federal Budget had an analysis showing that right now it's $3 trillion of offsets versus $4.5 trillion of spending if you know, all the programs are continued indefinitely. So yeah, th there's certainly a lot to cut there, but there's also you know, $3 trillion of offsets for a $2 trillion bill. There is, there is stuff to work with there. So Democrats certainly can offset this if they're willing to have the, the political will, and I hope they do. Um, I think that you know, we start out from Senator Manchin offered Senator Schumer over the summer, uh, a proposal for what his sort of starting point for reconciliation looks like. And on that document, he outlined 1.2, about $1.2 trillion of offsets he could support. Uh, as one of the most fiscally conservative Democrats in Congress, I think that gives us a reasonable floor to start from. So we take that uh, and then we add in some prescription drug price negotiation and Medicare, which you know, a lot of House moderates and, and Senate moderates have concerns with the, the current proposal, but something, a compromise along the lines of what uh, Congressman Scott Peters has proposed, that could raise another $200 billion or so. Uh, and so right there, you already have enough revenues to cover all of the non-climate provisions in our blueprint. And sometimes some moderates like Stephanie Murphy have said that they're even open to considering uh, borrowing for... Um, for, for those climate investments. So we would prefer that they you know, draw from other reasonable revenue options like uh, things we proposed in the past, closing the step-up basis loophole or some of the other provisions in the, two, you know, in the, the, the bill as the, it's currently constructed in the house that's, that has about you know, 
over $2 trillion of, of revenues in it now. Uh, we think it's certainly plausible for them to pay for the package if they want to. Mm -hmm. One of the moving a little bit to the, the politics of the situation, one of the things that I've been reading, you've obviously got two senators that two Democratic senators that you need to worry about. We've been talked a little bit about Senator Manchin. We haven't talked much about Senator Sinema from Arizona. And what I'm reading is that Senator Sinema really likes the, the family oriented proposals that are that are in the, the reconciliation bill, um, isn't real happy about the, some of the revenue raising measures. And on the flip side, Senator Manchin, supportive of some of the revenue raising measures, as you point out, but really isn't too wild about some of the family support measures that are in the bill. Um, I sort of see these two senators negotiating against each other and really preventing you from getting to the, that 50th vote that would then allow you to get the 51st from the, the vice president. Do, do you see a way to reconcile these two senators to compromise? Yeah, I think that that there's certainly a way to get agreement. I mean, we've we've talked with uh, with with you know both of their their staffs at various points, and you know I'm not going to say that they they support our framework uh, whole you know as it's fully constructed. I mean, they obviously would do some things different, but uh, I think what we've put together is very much in the universe of something that both of them can support, and I think they're closer together than they are to Bernie um and and what's what some of the left want so i think at the end of the day they will be able to find an agreement that that works for everyone but i think it'll just it'll take a little bit more work because as you said you know they don't have the exact same priorities and so they both want it to be paid for and they both you know want competitive revenues that you know don't don't hurt us in international competition in the tax code um, but what that looks like to each of them is a little bit different do you think that uh repeal of the uh of the limitation on state and local tax deduction is something that's going to be in the mix i mean i know that the some people in in blue states that are particularly heavily impacted by that are saying that uh, that that cap should be removed and uh and of course that would cost some money so it's like a reverse offset um what's uh, ppi's position on that I mean, we're very much against the idea of, of introducing a, a repeal or weakening of the salt cap into this bill. Uh, like, like the Medicare expansion, this is something that was not in President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Like the Medicare expansion, it would also cost, you know, I think it all is a similar cost of like 800 billion over 10 years. Um, you could do just those two policies and that's your 1.5 trillion. That would be the worst possible package. Uh, but you know, who, there are some who are saying no salt, no bill. You know, they uh, <laughs> the ones and you know, I mean, that's a faction that we really haven't heard from that much because it's not like Mansion or the Progressive Caucus in the House. But they could be a problem, couldn't they? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, those demands, if they stick with them, are just as destructive and possibly even more destructive than you know when Sanders says you know Medicare is not negotiable. I think that. You know, there, there's just no mandate for, you know, Democrats did not vote for Joe Biden to be president. Independents did not vote for Joe Biden to be president because they wanted to give more tax cuts to rich people. It was precisely the opposite. And actually, the, the salt cap, because of the other changes Republicans made uh, in 2017, the salt cap was a part of that. But if you were to just outright repeal or weaken the salt cap, it would actually be more regressive than it was before. Uh, the, if you the uncapped salt deduction would be more regressive than it was before. And so I think this is just, this is a terrible idea that has no place in the package. 
what uh, you know, you look at this politically, and and there there really seems to be a um, no easy way out of this if uh, people stick to their positions. Uh, what's at stake for the Biden agenda? I mean, I, I think of if if Democrats are in charge and and can't bring about a, a compromise on this, along with a reckon, uh, along with the infrastructure bill. Does that sort of put the Democratic uh, majority in jeopardy or put, that's kind of a softball, but I mean, <laughs> isn't there a political imperative behind this? Yeah, I mean, I think it could be, you know, really catastrophic for Democrats if we can't get something across the finish line. I mean, we should be able to agree on, you know, all of the, there, there are some investments here that everybody agrees on. I think everybody basically wants universal pre-K Everybody wants some expansion of the child tax credit. Everybody wants some strengthening for the Affordable Care Act. Everybody wants, you know, I know that we have the, the issue with Senator Manchin, but pretty much everybody else wants strong action on climate change. Uh, and I think even he is, is open to, to some things. We're gonna find out how much. Uh, but so the idea that we're gonna let the perfect be the enemy of the good, I think that would be, that would be catastrophic for Democrats. Uh, and I think, you know, especially if it takes down the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which, you know, that alone, I mean, think back to 2016, if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, that bipartisan infrastructure bill alone could have been one of the most, uh, the biggest accomplishments of her presidency. And the fact that it's just getting tossed to the wayside and getting buried is, is really not, not helpful for Democrats. So I think there's a political imperative to get infrastructure done, find a compromise on reconciliation, and you know, get something passed that is is fully paid for and and address and um, and passes the the policies that we can find consensus for. Yeah, I think one of the things that's that's missing to this is is there's no real backstop for getting this legislation done, right? The reconciliation bill is sort of alive until the end of the fiscal year, which is next September. Um, one of the things that that Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, does really well is he's really good at setting up these cliffs that force legislative action. Um, they're, they're never pleasant, um, but, but, but they work in terms of forcing people to state their positions and vote. Um, do you see any other than the, the, the end of the fiscal year deadline, do you see any other deadlines that are actually capable of forcing action? I mean, we, we've seen Democrats set deadlines of Labor Day, you know, 4th of July, Labor Day, end of the fiscal year. Now it's October 31st, and they're probably going to miss that one as well. Um, do you see any action forcing deadlines in the future to get this bill across the finish line anytime soon? Uh, I think potentially the debt limit if Democrats, you know, I know House Democrats are in favor of raising it through reconciliation. Senate Democrats are not, and that's a whole other issue. Uh, but I think, you know, the debt limit could potentially be, I think, obviously, I think, you know, trying to rush a, a $2 trillion, you know, transformative once in a generation social package to meet the debt limit deadline would be pretty problematic. I, I don't think that would end well. Um, but that, that seems like really the only thing besides the end of the year deadline. I would say two others to think about is, uh, the August recess next year, uh, I think that that's, that's an action forcing deadline. I don't think anybody is going to be wanting to be doing something uh, after the recess of an election, a midterm election year. Right, that's um, true. And, 
as Senator Manchin has said when somebody asked him, you know, are you confident this bill will pass at the end of this year? He said, I'm confident it will be passed before the midterms in 2022. And I think he's absolutely right about that. The other thing I just want to point out is, you know, the, the ACA, when we passed it in 2010, it was March 2010. Uh, I think the idea that big transformative legislation can only happen in, you know, before December of the first year, I don't think that's borne out historically. And I think that it would be better to do reconciliation right and pass it, you know, next in the winter or the spring than to rush it and do it poorly and have it backfire on us. I, just, mm -hmm. I, I think that, that deadlines are important, but they are not the only way to get something done. Um, just uh, before we close, I just wanted to get a sense of what, what kind of a reaction have you had to putting out this paper? You had some <clears throat> feedback from the Hill on a positive or negative sense, or did they just ignore it? <laughs> Oh, I, I would say it's overwhelming. It's been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, probably the 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 most paid attention to thing on the Hill that I've ever published. Uh, I think there was a really strong demand for you know somebody to come out and say this is what a two trillion dollar package looks like. There was all this focus given to the three point five trillion dollar number, and it just didn't seem like anybody had thought much about well, if we don't get that, where you know what do we prioritize? And so it's been very well received. I don't. Uh, you know, name specific names, but I think we've talked to you know over a dozen uh, key House and Senate offices that you know these are the, these are going to be the decisive votes, and it's all all been positive feedback. So I'm I'm optimistic that we'll get we'll get something here. Okay, well, on that rare uh, note of optimism for facing the future, we'll we'll <laughs> end it there and uh, and have you back later when it uh, all comes out and we'll see how much of this package uh, went into the final bill. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I have been talking with Ben Ritz, director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. Tori and I will be right back after these short messages when we'll be joined by Concord's chief economist, Steve Robinson. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman and Congress Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And we're here to give you a little bit of a Washington wrap up uh, on things that we didn't cover in the earlier segments. Tori, what's going on on the Hill? They've got this, uh, this upcoming Halloween deadline that we talked a little bit about, but of course that's a totally artificial deadline. How realistic is it they might do something by then? I think the, the big movement this week on the, the Build Back Better agenda and the, the reconciliation bill that Democrats are trying to move was the acknowledgement that they need to reduce the size of the of the of the package. So now is the, the hard part, you know, the horse trading that that's that's ongoing. Um, Speaker Pelosi set a deadline of October 31st to get at least the, the framework of an agreement out in the public space. Um, We've seen her set a lot of deadlines uh, over this year, starting with July 1st and then uh, Labor Day and then the, uh, you know, the end of the fiscal year and, and now October 31st. And the problem with her deadlines is they're rarely enforceable and that there's, there's no forcing action that mandates Democrats make some decisions. And this October 31st is, is yet another one of those deadlines. Um, the reconciliation bill lives, if you will, it lives and breathes until the end of 
fiscal 2022, which is in September of next year. So they've got a lot of time, a lot of runway in front of them uh, before they absolutely have to put legislation on the floor and, and log votes. So um, I, I don't see anything happening uh, of any major import between now and October 31st. And it may go well into the spring of next year uh, before they actually get legislation moving across the floor of the House and the Senate. But we'll see. But still, for the for the near term, I don't see any monumental movement happening between now and the end of the month. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was surprised to uh, hear Ben. Well, I wasn't that surprised, but I mean, it's a, stunning to think about. You know, Ben Ben floated a date of uh, next August <laughs> as potentially a, a deadline to, to do something before the midterm elections. Well, uh, I, I can tell I can tell you why I think that's probably too late, and that's because they have to start the budget process again for fiscal twenty three in the spring. And once they pass a twenty three budget resolution, it supplants the twenty two budget resolution, including the instructions that created the reconciliation bill that they're working on right now. So I don't think they can go that long, but it wouldn't surprise me if this doesn't go, if this you know, extends into February or March of next year, and then the next budget process will begin around that time. So I look to the January, February, March of next year as when we actually start legislating on this, this measure. And if they don't pass a budget resolution, uh, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but the, the current one stays in effect, correct? I correct. mean, it doesn't, it doesn't lapse. They just right. if they don't do a new one. This one stays in effect. Right, but we do have precedent. Uh, the reconciliation instructions, even though the budget resolution might live on, uh, the reconciliation instructions do expire on six September 30th of next year, 2022. Hmm, well. I suspect if they haven't done anything by then, they're not going to do it in the middle of a campaign. But uh, right. but we'll see. Um, Steve, last week we talked a little bit about the upcoming um, announcement of the cost of living adjustment uh, increase for Social Security. And uh, in the interim that uh, has been announced, what, uh, what have they come up with? Yeah, so the uh, Social Security Administration announced last week that the, the cost of living adjustment would be 5.9%, uh, which is actually the, the highest level since 1982. Although I would point out that in 2008, so just 12 years ago, the, uh, the COLA was 5.8%. So obviously not, not much difference between 5.8 and 5.9, but uh, you know, in the interim years uh, since 2008, the Social Security program has gotten much larger. Uh, we're now spending a trillion dollars a year on Social Security. So when you talk about the COLA uh, of being 5.9%, you know, 5 .9%, you know that's, that's roughly uh, you know, $59 billion. So it's a lot of money. Uh, and in fact, I mean, um, Initially, the Social Security Administration, as well as the Congressional Budget Office, assumed the COLA would be in the range of, of three, three, between three and four percent. So essentially, the, the COLA being close to six percent, you've got about a 20, 20, 30 billion dollar difference in the cost as a result of the higher cost of living adjustment. Yeah, that's a pretty big uh, miss. And I guess this um, 
it, it, it just shows the effect of if the rising inflation does not turn out to be as transitory as uh, everybody in the White House and the Fed has been assuming, um, it could have um, pretty serious consequences for the entire budget. I mean, it's not just Social Security. Yeah, clear, clearly there are other programs, the uh, military retirement, civil service retirement, um, those have cost of living adjustments. Uh, you also have oh, the supplemental security income program, which is low income uh, disabled and elderly program. Uh, and then of course you have a number of programs that are actually linked to the poverty level. So we, we determine eligibility based on your income relative to poverty. And the poverty level itself is indexed. So you end up in a situation where higher inflation increases the poverty level and therefore more people potentially become eligible for benefits. So you know, the, the, the effect of inflation on the federal budget can be substantial. Now it also works on the other side, if, if nominal incomes are rising, uh, you end up with higher taxes. So you, you're in a situation, what, what's called bracket creep, where the, the, the federal tax code has things that are indexed, uh, but they're indexed to a different uh, CPI. That's what's called the chained CPI. Uh, which tends to rise more slowly. So if you have incomes rising at one level and the tax brackets and the various provisions of the tax code rising at another, another level, you can actually end up, you know, the federal government benefits from higher revenue due to inflation. And so you sort of have to offset these effects. You know, does inflation affect spending more or does it affect revenue more? And usually the wild card there is the interest rate because usually interest rates also follow inflation. And of course we have to pay interest on the federal debt. And because the federal debt has increased so much in recent years, we're in a situation where higher inflation, if it resulted in higher interest rates would result in higher interest costs. And those higher interest costs could largely offset any revenue effect. So the net effect on the budget could, could, could be a substantially worse situation if inflation persisted and interest rates rise. I think we're going to get a, uh, a look at the end of next week with the uh, third quarter GDP report uh, coming out. Uh, and that'll, that'll tell us really, it'll be a very interesting report because really it would encompass some of the, uh, the well, a lot of the Delta variant surge uh, that we had in the late summer and, and, and fall. So I guess in some ways it's gonna be a hard one to read because it would encompass that. And so it doesn't tell us that much about what may happen in, in the future, but it will give us a, a sense of, of how bad the, uh, of a hit uh, the Delta variant uh, and, and in what seg uh, sectors of the economy uh, that, uh, that hit. Any, any, any guesses on, uh, on what well, we found out uh, in the third quarter GDP report? One thing I'm going to be interested to look at is, so we know uh, from the CBO report last year that, that revenues came galloping in in the last quarter of the fiscal year. And it'll be interesting to see whether that's a result of economic activity, which will play out in the GDP numbers, or whether it's a result of tax planning by high net worth individuals and corporations to avoid what might be potentially higher taxes next year. And so I think that the GDP report, uh, if, it's, if it's a gangbuster, then that'll tell us that the, the revenue increases that, that we're seeing right now, uh, that there's a, a, a strong economic uh, argument for those revenue increases. But if the GDP report is lackluster, then that tells me that this is just that the, the, the tax increases that we see, it's a one-time revenue bump from tax planning purposes. 
Yeah, that uh, that that will be interesting. And um, what was the? Uh, I mean, the economy has been doing relatively well in the last couple of reports. Um, so it'll be, I guess, interesting to see, you know, where where the uh, the number comes in, and also, um, you know, what it says about future employment. I suppose, um, you know, who's Who's going back? Who? Who's? You know, where? Where do we still have gaps to fill uh, in the economy? So, when does that report come out? I believe it's next Thursday at uh, seven thirty or eight thirty in the morning. Well, we'll we'll certainly be uh, on top of it, and because uh, it'll be certainly the economy and the budget have a lot of uh, interaction and. Uh, yeah, the 28th, October 28th, I believe. October 28th, okay. So I believe. Before, before that Halloween deadline. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, speaking of deadlines, uh, this is uh, Bob Bixby, your host of Facing the Future. I've been talking with Tori Gorman, our policy director, and Steve Robinson, our chief economist, about some of the latest news from Washington. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.